time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly, sponsored by Insperity, HR that makes a difference. On News Radio 1120, KMOX. Hello, friends. It's that time of year, that magical time, when we gather here together at Augusta to see the world's greatest golfers in this picturesque environment, this classic historic golf course that has meant so much to so many through the ages. And it's only fitting then that being out of town during this magical week is our own Michael Kelly. Hello, Michael Kelly. Brother, uh, listening to you do a Jim Nance is, is quite a special thing. Guess who's here? Hi, Michael. Megan Shackelford is there. She is up indeed. Hold for me. <clears throat> she is indeed because, ladies and gentlemen, you'll find this hard to believe. Michael mm-hmm. Kelly is out of town, and you'll find this harder to believe. He's on a golf outing. How's it going, yeah. buddy? Well, it's, you know, it's the official uh, start of the golf season when the Masters comes. And every year I'm typically out of town, and this, this time's no different. I've been on the course four days in a row. Um, and uh, this morning we're watching a little bit of the Masters and then getting ready to go play again today and hoping that when I come back this afternoon, uh, Tiger Woods is back in it. You know, Friday's moving day at the Masters. John, I know you're a big uh, golf fan, you know, Mr. Hole-in-One and all. <clears throat> exactly. So, Michael, when you yeah. guys are out golfing, do you take it as seriously amongst yourselves? as the players at the Masters. No. Well, Megan, come on. You know me. <laughs> and you also know these guys that are on this trip. Um, now, most guys don't don't have a beverage on the golf course. We uh, with, withhold all consumption of uh, cocktails until after uh, the round. But today's our last day. and um, I knew the butt was coming. Who, I was yeah, thinking that does sound those, serious. Yeah. And for those of us who lost a lot of money um, – Yours truly. Uh, I probably will about the ninth hole consume one of those Bud Light products. Oh, the good. ninth hole. Oh, there you go. Budweiser's in the news these days, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> well, I mean, every liquor company in the country's done it. Um, it we, this selective outreach we've got going on right now these days, John, is I don't know. It's kind of silly and not healthy. I but. know it, it bothers you, but when are you coming home? I'm coming home tomorrow morning. I'm, I'm coming back to sit on set with you, even though most of the viewers on Channel 2 would rather look at Megan. Uh, <laughs> they're going to have to look at me this Sunday uh, talking to you. Well, there you go. Uh, Megan, uh, big plans for the weekend? Um, the Tower Grove Farmer's Market starts hey. back tomorrow, and you guys know I love that, and that's what I look forward to every Saturday. Not quite as exciting as you a golf the, outing. You got the, the apples out there? Um, they don't really have apples yet you got the cauliflower out there uh maybe cauliflower i don't know lettuce lots of lettuce, lettuce. this time of year market to buy all the cauliflower and broccoli Hancock. <laughs> i oh buy what? everything there what's wrong with that but yeah no michael kelly golf weekend just how's the, how's the food out there pal you've been eating Buddy, we had yeah chop shop last night for uh hancock's birthday oh nice or, uh, i mean for uh, bobby soutier's birthday nice and uh they now, are you about a, you there are you a beef and shrimp and lobster guy or how do you uh, no i was a i was a chicken and shrimp guy last chicken night there was, guy. Most guys had lobster but i was yeah. chicken and shrimp yeah. the um the, the 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 fine attendants down at Jumby Bay have asked about you. Have they now? They said have you told yeah they said have you told your friend we got rid of the pool table. I'm well aware. 
It's and I say, yeah, unfortunately. She said, well, if he spends that much money on the pool table again, we could probably afford to get another one. <laughs> <laughs> well, buddy, you have a good round of golf. <clears throat> Enjoy yourself Thanks, out there. <clears throat> Thanks and- for pinch hitting for me, Megan, and I'm sorry I've left you there with Hancock. And whatever will you guys talk about today? There's oh. so much stuff to hop into. Yeah, we got stuff. We got stuff. We'll handle yeah. it. Find out what's happening with your Redbirds from the manager himself, Oliver Marmol. Sunday mornings at 10.15 on Sports on a Sunday morning. And Wednesday mornings at 9.50. The Ollie Marmol Show. I'm excited for not only the club, but for the fans. This is a, this is a special year for sure. KMOX is Cardinals Radio. John Hancock in, Megan Shackelford in for Michael Kelly. Megan, how are you? I'm wonderful. So glad to have you join us. This is our politics segment. We're going to do this and then move right along uh, after that. We already covered in great detail our thoughts on the Tennessee expulsion situation over there. Uh, Another big political item in the news, of course, is the trial of Donald Trump, the indictment of Donald Trump. Um, your thoughts, because you and I haven't really had a chance to talk no, about this. No, I, I got to talk a little bit about it with Brad Young uh, earlier in the week on DGS, and I learned a lot of really interesting stuff from a legal perspective that I didn't quite understand about the case. So that that is helpful. It does sound like legally it's a lot more complicated, right, than what maybe it looks like when you watch the news. Politically, though, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to watch. We all know Donald Trump. We know he can't help but blow up, make every bad scenario he's in 10 times worse. Um, So I think that that's really the key to this now is watching how his behavior around this situation ends up impacting the broader Republican Party, how other Republicans react, what they start saying and doing, if it impacts who else is going to get into the primary race. I think it's a much big picture. It doesn't sound like legally this is really going to take him down, but it's definitely going to be a spectacle like everything surrounding Donald Trump. Yeah, it's going to be a spectacle. And it's regrettable, I think, in a lot of ways that this was the first case out of the gate. Because there's others, right? There are a lot of other Uh, things pending out there. Civil and criminal cases. And uh, and this thing's going to get going to get wild. So I don't know if you saw the news yesterday. Jim Jordan, the chair of the House Oversight Committee, the congressman from Ohio, has subpoenaed Jim Pomerantz, who is the former assistant uh, district attorney in New York, who resigned and wrote a book. Uh, He resigned during Alvin Bragg. And so you look at that on its face and you think, okay. Jordan's calling in this lawyer who quit and wrote a book about it uh, because he wants to use that testimony to discredit Alvin Bragg. Yeah, disgruntled former employee is going to come in and tell us all the dirty political secrets of the current prosecutor and why this is a witch hunt for Donald Trump. And the problem, of course, is if you read Jim Pomerantz's book, the reason he resigned was because his team was pursuing a case of tax fraud on Donald Trump. Uh, Involving a lot of the information that came out of the Alan Weisselberg trial and the Trump Organization trial, the, the, the same judge presided over that case, Weisselberg getting four months in prison uh, coming out of that. Uh, Weisselberg, had, who had been the CFO of the Trump organ- Organization, and coming out of that case was information that the Trump Organization would minimize the value of their properties for income tax purposes and then create documents to inflate the value of those properties when they were seeking bank loans and participation. In other words, he's a con man. And then that is what Pomerantz quit over because that case, Alvin Bragg, decided not to pursue. Now, I happen to think, you know, I don't know what the statute of limitations Mm -hmm. situation might be. I'm not a lawyer. 
But I happen to think that would have been a much stronger case potentially than the case that Bragg actually brought over this campaign finance violation. Yeah, I I think it's uh, an interesting choice. On one hand, I can see why you would focus on the campaign finance, right? I think a lot of people particularly New Yorkers, have a deep understanding that Trump has a long history of shady business practices, right? And I think a lot of people who just know about him in the pop culture scenario kind of say, hey, you're a little sleazy. We're not all that surprised by that. So maybe Bragg's thought process is regurgitating decades-old business practices. Maybe the public isn't going to feel they're as relevant to right now, to Trump's political career. Um, But it is fascinating that Jim Jordan like did he just see this guy's name and decide oh you're probably on my side let's get you in here such little (laughs) thought apparently Apparently. or research maybe has gone into that but also it's not surprising I feel like the the Trump the hardcore Trump supporters particularly the elected officials you know they just can never admit they were wrong and so they just double down and double down like they don't even care about their own reputation um, how they appear to their even just their own constituency, let alone the broader American public. Um, having uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene run for her SUV was the highlight of the arraignment. Nothing like that, that happened with Trump was entertaining at all whatsoever. But for her, she's always so tough. You know, she knows everything. And she's such a fighter, John. You know, she really gets in there. One small group of protesters in New York City had her running for life back to the safety of her large SUV. So that was the highlight to me of the Trump legal woes this week. Well, it's going to be interesting. And Jim Jordan may have something up his sleeve here as it relates to Jim Pomerantz. But, uh, you know, this whole thing. And I guess, you know, if you look at Alvin Bragg, uh, he did pick the salacious stuff. I mean, here you got a porn star having sex with a guy and they're paying her off. And then there's a woman that had an affair with the same guy and they're paying her off. And there's... A doorman that said he fathered a kid out of wedlock, which, by the way, has been disproven. But they paid him off, too. And that stuff is kind of salacious and, you know, it involves sex. And that was the case that Bragg decided to take to the grand jury instead of the financial fraud case. So all of that's going to play out, folks, before our very eyes. I wanted to talk to you about some thoughts I had on uh, medical on, on recreational marijuana, which is now legal in the state of Missouri, and voters all across the area uh, on Tuesday voted to increase the tax on marijuana. It's got a six percent state tax, and now counties and municipalities, many, have put placed an additional three percent tax on the marijuana. Do you have any concerns about that? You know, I think it's still relatively low as far as taxing of marijuana is concerned, right? When you look at Colorado, um, even Illinois, super high taxes over there um, for the same product. So I don't think that the local or counties um, deciding to add an additional tax is going to have a big impact at all whatsoever. Um, I know there's always concerns about what happens to black market marijuana whenever legal marijuana goes up in price. I just can't imagine that that's going to really have the big impact here in Missouri that we've seen in other places because it's I think it's so new for us here to the idea of having recreate, even though we've had medical for a while, having recreational marijuana is kind of still this like really exciting novelty, I think, for a lot of people. Um, And I don't think we're going to see that big shift back towards people saying that's too expensive because the convenience is the factor for folks. Right. And and the the acknowledgement that what you're choosing to do 
is not illegal. You're not a criminal, right, for driving somewhere. You can probably hit multiple dispensaries within a mile of where we're sitting right now. So our colleague you mentioned earlier, Brad Young, I heard him on this topic yesterday, and I thought he made some really interesting points. Because in Colorado, what happened was you had a, a fairly substantial population that was smoking weed illegally there. Now it becomes legal. And the number of consumers that are consuming that product has grown considerably, doubled, perhaps tripled. And so you've increased the consumer base for the product. And they have very high taxes, as you mentioned, in Colorado. And one of the things that they're seeing now several years into having legalized marijuana there is that the black market sales of marijuana are going through the roof. And the legal sales have kind of leveled off and have even come down a little bit. And the point he made is that consumers are going to go find their product and and that this actually legal marijuana is a boom for the black market because those products are more competitive now and and they can sell them at a discount and still make a lot of money. Yeah, and I I certainly can see that in a Colorado and a California, right? I think uh, we all kind of were aware that that marijuana was a large industry in those places well before they medically legalize it or recreationally legalize it, right? You see it in the movies. It's in the culture. Like, if you want to be a pot smoker, you're going to head to one of those places, right? So I feel like they had a different set of infrastructure to allow their black market to really potentially thrive. I think also, I can't believe I'm going to say this, the way Missouri handled the legalization of marijuana, which is much smarter than other places, right? I think a lot of other places said, this is going to be our financial savior to our budget, right? Mm -hmm. This is a new opportunity for us to get. Yeah, absolutely. This is a new opportunity. We're going to pay up for so many things with all of this new money from marijuana. And by doing that, we're going to tax it at 25, 30, almost 40 percent in some places. You're absolutely going to see a backlash. Again, Missouri, smart, kept it low, kept it reasonable. Even with the local taxes, we're now sitting at about the same sales tax that we all pay here in the city of St. Louis on marijuana. Right. That's that's not a shocking number. You're not going to get sticker shock. And people have the ability to feel a, a safety and security of going to shop for those products. And they have a lot more diversity of product that they can get, right? You're not calling, you're not going on the black market and finding a fizzy beverage that tastes like watermelon and might give you just that right balance of relaxation. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't know what you're getting. So I think Missouri's actually been wise. A fizzy drink. Is, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty, yeah, you, a, you can get it always, John. That's, that's the, the beauty of legalization. And, and you're, uh, you pause it that the folks from Illinois are coming over here because I it's so much I can't imagine they won't if yeah. they, they come, come over sh- for gas. They come shop here for one thing and decide to stop into one of these dispensaries and realize that uh, they can save a good chunk of change. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing that flow of traffic reverse from whenever they first got recreational over there. Well, we're going to keep an eye on all of that. we got a very big show today, uh, and, and you're going to stick around and be on the show yes. for that first hour with me and uh, Amy and Chris Ranji. Uh, But before they get here, uh, when we come back after the break, I'm going to visit with one of my all-time musical heroes, John Anderson. He is the lead singer of the band Yes. They are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You may know some of their music, Roundabout. I've seen all good people. You know that song. I've seen all good people turn their heads each day. Yeah. I'll have to listen in. Owner of a Lonely Heart. You know that one. I do know that one, yeah. Yes, and he's the lead singer. He's coming to town. He's going to be at the Family Arena. And he's going to join us. We're going to visit with CBS News legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum about a report that came out on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. He's had some 
pretty nice vacations out there over the years. We're going to talk about Easter traditions and get into a little campaign finance discussion for you political junkies out there on this Good Friday. We'll be back here on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly, sponsored by Insperity, HR that makes a difference. On News Radio 1120, KMOX. I've seen all good people turn their heads each day, so satisfied I'm on my way. Oh my gosh. I've seen all good people oh turn my gosh. their heads. John Hancock and Megan Shackelford in for Michael Kelly today. Megan's been gracious enough to allow me the honor of interviewing one of my all-time musical heroes. I, uh, those of you listeners know that know me know I'm in politics. I've met four United States presidents, whoopee-doo. Today, I'm speaking with the man I consider one of the great composers in rock and roll history and performers, John Anderson, longtime lead singer of the band Yes, and he's coming to town. He's going to be here on Tuesday, May the 9th at the Family Arena in St. Charles. The showtime is at 7. You can get tickets, as I already have, at familyarena.com. John Anderson, welcome to St. Louis, my friend. Excellent. Nice to hear you. It is great to hear you. Uh, This is a tour that... uh, well, it's going to be really interesting. You're playing with a group called the Band Geeks. Uh, going to be doing mostly yes? All of it, yes. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, and everything, all of the pieces that we know and love. And I saw that this is not a lengthy tour. How's your how's your chops holding up? Very good. You know, we just want to see how things go. You know, it's a, it's a new idea. A friend of mine sent me a video of these guys who live in uh, Long Island area, um, near New York. And uh, he sent this video of them performing Heart of the Sunrise. Mm. I couldn't believe how good it was. It was just so damn good. It felt like they really love Yes. They love Yes music. And uh, the sound of the 70s, if you like, you know. So I got in touch with the bass player, Richie, and just said, I really enjoyed the recordings you do and the videos you do. Thank you so much. Why don't we go on tour? And here we and have it. And, and, and he went very quiet. I said, Richie, are you still there? <clears throat> he said, yeah. What kind of a tour? I said, well, I want to do epics and classics. You know, Heart of the Sunrise, of course, and Close to the Edge, Awaken. Oh. Case of Delirium, and some of the songs everybody loves from the 70s, and that's what we're doing. How does Richie do on that bass lick on Roundabout? Unbelievable. <laughs> does he play a Rickenbacker? Yes, of course he does, yeah. <laughs> these guys are so into the Yes music world, and uh, it's a great feeling for me to be able to go on the road with a band that plays just like the 70s, like the classic band. One of the things I've noticed, and I'm a musician, I, I compose some and, and perform as well, and I have noticed that in my little circle of musician friends, yes is so much more appreciated uh, than, you know, say the general public because of the intricacy in that music. And I'm thinking about a piece like uh, um, Long Distance Runaround where Bill Bruford's playing in 5-4 time and the rest of you are going in 4-4 time and they meet up in, in the time signatures. Little intricacies like that. How important to you in, in composing is it to, to just kind of delve the depths of creativity? 
Well, you do it more when you're on on in the studio together, just trying an idea out. You just try this, try that. And I would catch Chris Squire and Bill Bruford doing some riffs and things and think, wait a minute, I have a song, we can go with that one. Do that riff again, and then modulate, change key, and then I start singing the song that I had in my head. And we put that down on on a tape recorder and then just start thinking about producing it. So you get into that structure of music idea. That's how we were able to do long pieces like Close to the Edge and uh, all those long pieces, eight, nine-minute pieces of music, you know, and you start thinking, this is going to be great on stage. That's what you, you create music in order to get on stage and try it out. Yeah, and do you have a favorite in the Yes catalog? It's weird because I've just been going through all these songs, two hours of music from the 70s there, uh, over the past month just relearning, remembering lyrics and things like that. I just fall in love with them all. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it's an album that was quite controversial in its day with uh, Tales from Topographic Oceans. I know Rick Wakeman was not a particular fan of that one. I think that was a brilliant album. Uh, Whose concept was that in the band? Did you all, did you bring it to the gang or was it kind of more of a collaboration? I got together with uh, Steve and did some rough, ideas and sort of guess how four pieces of music could work, you know, four 20-minute works. we just done a tour with Close to the Edge, which, again, is 20 minutes of music, and uh, Starship Trooper has a 10-minute work. So I said, why don't we just do a large double album, four 20-minute pieces of music? And, and uh, Steve said, yeah, look, we can do this. So we went to with, with Chris and Alan White was in the band then and Rick Wakeman. But Rick was doing his own album at the time, so he didn't have much time to work on topographic. But the idea of the, the ritual, we're going to be doing ritual on the tour. Oh, nice. It's a monster. You know, it's like, uh, why not do this music? It's still beautiful, it's still wonderful, and it's timeless. Mm. Speaking of timeless... For many of us, this was what introduced us to the band, yes. It's Roundabout from the Fragile album. And I've heard you tell the story, John Anderson, about how Roundabout came along. I'd love you to share that with our listeners. Okay, well, we were in Scotland doing a tour, and we just played a show in Aberdeen, which is north of Scotland. We're heading down to Glasgow. It was about a four-hour drive down a one, two-lane, sort of no highways or anything, just a road, winding road, and then there's a roundabout there, the local village there, and then another roundabout. So on the 20th roundabout, I said, there's too many roundabouts on this trip. And me and Steve were in the back of the van, and we started writing the song. And one of the things I noticed was that... Uh, left and right of this very narrow road with sort of mountains coming right out of the sky there because the the clouds were so low. And I wrote down, coming out of the sky, mountains coming out of the sky, and they stand there. (laughs) In and and out the valley. (laughs) Yeah, down through the valley. And then we went through uh, around some uh, lakes, you know, Loch Lomond and things like that. And these are big lakes. 
and we're driving around the lakes, in and around the lake. And by the time we got to Glasgow, 24 hours later, we'd be home. That was so that was the lyric, you see? 24 before, my love, I'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just a classic piece of rock and roll, uh, historic music, very clever, very difficult, uh, very intricate. Uh, you are now a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And you got there after, unfortunately, the death of Chris Squire, your just phenomenal bass player. And you performed Roundabout there in Cleveland several years ago with Getty Lee of Rush sitting in on the bass. How was that? He he was brilliant. You know, such a sweet guy. And he was a big fan of Chris. Him and Chris used to get together now and again. And he was so happy to get on stage with us. And uh, it was a great feeling. You know, Chris was there in spirit. I never... Never ever forget that, you know, and uh, he'll be there uh, this weekend when we start doing our first shows. And then when we get to St. Louis, we'll be so well organized. Well, I will be there on Tuesday, May the 9th at the Family Arena. Doors open at 6. The showtime is 7 o'clock p.m. Familyarena.com for tickets. The great John Anderson is coming. Before I let you go, um, we lost within the last year or two uh, one of your collaborators. You, you've collaborated beyond yes with some of the most amazing musicians, one of whom, Vangelis. Uh, tell me about his talents. Well, he was quite an amazing man for one thing. Very funny, Greek guy, kind of a big guy, and he had big fingers, and man, he could play the piano and the keyboard so well. But he was one of the first to use laser beams in a show. And the sound of this, when I walked in the studio, I had to start singing every time because he was already making music, and I'd wave to him, shout, say, is the microphone on us? He said, yeah, well, said, just record this. And we'd write three or four songs in an afternoon. It was just a natural, spontaneous music. And uh, anybody who knows Vangelis' music is, is quite brilliant. He did some great film scores. And uh, wonderful guy. Beautiful guy. He's like my mentor. Mm, wow, that's, that's a high compliment. Uh, how did you start in music? You grew up, but was this something that you knew from a very young age that you had this particular gift? Well, way, way, way back in the in the fifties, uh, I used to go on the on the, to the local farm with my brother, and he's three years older than me. And we work uh, milking cows, delivering milk around town, and we'd sing Everly Brothers songs and Buddy Holly songs, and then got a record by this guy called Elvis Presley. So we started singing. He would sing Elvis Presley. And I would sing Roy Orbison songs because I'm an alto tenor. Man, we had a great time. Time flew by when you sing. And there it was, uh, the beginning of an amazing career. John Anderson, the great John Anderson, has been our guest here on The Voice of St. Louis. He will be in St. Charles right next door to St. Louis County on Tuesday, May the 9th at the Family Arena. And you can get those tickets at familyarena.com. Mr. Anderson, thank you so much for your time. It has been an honor to spend these minutes with you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it very much. And when we come back, Megan, we're going to dive back into the realm of politics. If I can come down out of the clouds after that interview, that's next on Camo X.
Now, back to Hancock and Kelly, sponsored by Insperity, HR that makes a difference, on News Radio 1120, KMOX. I wonder if they'll be playing that at the family arena in uh, May of this year. Megan Shackelford joins me. She's in for the vacationing. Michael Kelly, there's something you don't see every day. And we're going to get back into politics. I get my head out of the clouds and my interviewing my childhood hero there. You're so serene. Uh, Watching you yeah. and listening to that conversation was magical. <laughs> Thank you. It was it was pretty cool. Uh, I'll tell you what's not very cool is this lawsuit uh, or this this indictment against Donald Trump. And, you know, not to get too deeply into the weeds, and we're not going to spend the segment talking about Donald Trump, I promise. Uh, but the underlying case, so what, what Alvin Bragg is alleging is that the Trump, uh, Donald Trump forged business documents in an effort to conceal payments to two women and another person uh, to keep, according to the court filing, to keep the information of his extramarital activities out of the campaign flow of information, thereby creating a campaign finance violation. Yes. That's the underlying case. And the Federal Elections Commission that exists in Washington is charged with overseeing the conduct of campaigns and the compliance of these campaigns with the various campaign laws that exist in the in the country. Uh, they decided to opt out on this. But what I want to talk about, Megan, because you and I do this for a living. Yes. We do politics for a living. And so we're dealing with federal campaign election laws. We also deal with state uh, and in some cases local campaign mm-hmm. election laws. And it is my contention uh, that the campaign finance laws in this country have, though well-intentioned, have really screwed up the way we campaign. Do you concur? Uh, yeah. It, it's such a complex, convoluted mess of a system. I mean, I think anybody, people who aren't in this professionally, can look around and see how just the sheer amount of money, right, that's flowing in and out of campaigns. And and there's a good reason for it, right? We just saw in the city of St. Louis, we had a very low voter turnout, right? You think about how much money corporations spend to market and advertise their products Mm -hmm. to the general public. It's even harder in campaigns because these dollars are being being spent to motivate people's behavior, right? To get you convinced that you need to disrupt your busy schedule on whatever Tuesday it is, go out vote. Not just vote, but be educated on how you're voting, understand the issues, and know very confidently who you're going to vote for, right? That's really what this is all about. This money is being spent to convince people to to take a certain behavior. It's hard to change people's behavior, right? Yep. It takes a lot of money. We have a really um, abysmal voter participation level in this country, and so a lot of money is flowing to try to change that, right? And one of the things that, that troubles me, and we've these are well-intentioned reforms, and what we've done is we've said there's a limit to how much you can give to any campaign. It's got to be personal money. It can't be corporate money. And that was put in place to try and, quote, rein in the amount of money spent on politics. Well, what's happened, of course, is that now you've got all of these unaligned or these aligned packs that can take unlimited contributions. And they often end up raising four or five, ten times more than the campaign committee. Yet they cannot coordinate their message. 
Right. And so I think it's really confusing for the regular person to understand. You have a candidate committee. So John Hancock, his committee, and he's taken $100 donations from his friends and neighbors and his community, right? And then there's the John Hancock is the greatest man in the world pack, right? And they can take money from anyone they want anywhere. And in some circumstances, they aren't even PACs. They can be a nonprofit entity that doesn't even have to say who's giving their money. The only restriction on them is that they can't coordinate with me. They just all can't. Can't talk and, to each and other. So here you're running a campaign, and the candidate who's running for office has no real ability to control the messaging that's coming out of that pack. Absolutely. So it's it's one of those things that's like, you know, they say water always finds a way, money always finds a way, right? So the good intentions here of making sure that one maybe really wealthy individual can't buy elections is a great intention. But when it's put into practice, the money finds a way. And sometimes it finds a way that makes it even harder for a candidate to push their message. It makes it even harder for the general public to understand who's promoting the messages that they're receiving at home. And that is where it's problematic. And that is where we need to take a step aside when we come back. Speaking of money, Justice Clarence Thomas has been on the receiving end of some pretty sweet travel. We're going to talk about that with CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. That's next after the news on KMOX. KMOX is Cardinals Radio. Tonight, it's the Cards and Brewers. Emron Total Access 615. First pitch 710. I'm Cardinals outfielder Lars Newbar, and you're listening to the voice of Cardinals KMOX. Welcome back to Hancock and Kelly. John Hancock, Megan Shackelford alongside. She's in for Michael Kelly today. And if you follow the news as we do, uh, you notice that yesterday this publication ProPublica came out. And they have found that for a couple of decades, Justice Clarence Thomas on the U.S. Supreme Court has accepted luxury trips from a good friend and Republican mega donor without exactly reporting them on financial disclosure forms. To break that down for us, we've asked CBS News legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum to join us, and he does now. Thane, welcome to KMOX, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Thank you, Megan. So the... What's the what's the basic bottom line here? Uh, ProPublica found what? So you know, uh, in in for people who are elected in office, as well as most federal judges, but it doesn't necessarily apply to the Supreme Court. Uh, any kind of financial uh, gifts, compensation of any kind, must be reported, and some of it is actually disallowed entirely. But at a minimum, there must be some reporting. For whatever reason, the Supreme Court is treated differently, and the rules until just last month uh, did not have an, uh, an absolute reporting requirement when it came to something like what we have here is hospitality, right? So if someone invites you on their yacht or puts you up for a month in their vacation home on a lake, right, in theory, that is an in-kind compensation, and in theory should be reported. But it's again, it's not the same thing as any kind of financial remuneration or for that matter, the acceptance of a gift. Now you could say, well, you know, if somebody takes you on these lavish trips, that is a gift. And that's really where the conflict is. Um, The Supreme Court always holds itself out as different so that it certainly doesn't see itself as elected officials. Uh, But at the same time, it is the highest court in the land So if there are ethics rules, you would assume it should apply to them as well. Yeah, absolutely. So can you explain a little bit more of 
why it doesn't. Is it just kind of been a standard practice that they get to operate in their own independent manner? What really is the reasoning to set the Supreme Court aside with when it comes to financial disclosure? Yeah, you know, Megan, it's interesting. This is not, you know, this is not totally unusual. There are a number of things where Supreme Court justices are held to a different standard. I think it has a little to do with that, that, that you know, the lifetime appointment uh, has a lot to do with it. Uh, and, of course, checks and balances, separation of powers, things that where people are accountable to the public are, from the founding father's perspective, your elected representatives, right? The person you vote for, for your congressperson or your senator, that is the essence of democracy, right? Direct democracy. The Supreme Court, the reason it receives lifetime appointment is to keep it away from the political process. The idea that it would be always treated separately and apart. And by the way, a lot of the controversy that we've seen recently about the reforms to the Supreme Court, for instance, putting them on a time clock, you know, one term of 12 years, you know, you're seeing a lot of that. They did their own recent report on some kind of reforms that could be implemented to change this. Uh, but, you know, it, it's more, it's just flat out American tradition. The Supreme Court in often cases is treated as very separate, even from other federal judges uh, that also have lifetime appointment. Uh, but apparently the uh, Justice, uh, uh, Congressional uh, Justice Committee uh, uh, is now in the, in the, you know, given this most recent disclosure, is, uh, is giving some consideration to changing the rules and making Supreme Court justices as accountable to the same ethics laws as other public officials. CBS News legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum is our guest. We're talking about this uh, story that broke yesterday about some trips, uh, very nice trips, that Justice Clarence Thomas had taken uh, that were provided by a friend and Republican donor to him. Do we know, Thane, uh, have other justices benefited from this kind of travel? I'm thinking specifically, I I know Justice Scalia was on some sort of a trip when he passed away. Uh, do we know if this is a, a commonplace occurrence or is this unique to Justice Thomas? We don't know, uh, John, and it would not surprise me if this is common, right? It would not surprise me at all because, again, it's a little murkier, right? It's not compensation. It's a trip, right? Hospitality, you know, free hotel rooms, things like that. So you can see how, you know, it gets a little fuzzy, as opposed to, well, I'm not being compensated for something. Somebody's giving me a gift. They invited me on a trip. Why shouldn't I go? Um, uh, so we just don't know. We don't know how extensive this is. You also have to remember the whole purpose of these ethics rules are to prevent conflicts of interest, right? So you could say, uh, well, well, what in what way does this violate that? Well, one thing what you learned is not just that gift. But the same person who keeps inviting the Thomases, both husband and wife, on these trips also donated $500,000 to uh, Mrs. Thomas's sort of some kind of political action committee she was creating. So that, I think, raises a different issue, right, that a check, an actual check was written to help finance a political action committee by a Supreme Court justice's wife. To me, that's different in a different category than saying, you know, why don't you stay for a big, you know, stay, stay in our home on the lake for a month. You know, we're happy to have you. Well, um, 
absolutely a clear a clear conflict happening there, which I think we've all been hearing about for a while with the Thomases in particular and their kind of unique uh, set set up with him being a justice and her being very involved in in Republican campaigns. So I kind of heard you say this was discovered because it was disclosed. So do we think we're going to see, even if it's not, you know, required under the law, um, just some pressure for all justices um, to really be disclosing things properly? Or do we think that it will kind of just be a story about the Thomases, as we've seen in the past with his wife's activity and then move on? Well, let's, you know, it, it's Republicans so far in the House and, Cong- and Senate have been more quiet. It's Democrats that are saying that there needs to be some kind of, you know, congressional investigation from Judiciary Committee to see how, A, extensive this is, that's the investigative element, and two, the possibilities of reform. What kinds of rules, new ethic rules can be implemented to prevent uh, this from happening? But, you know, you know, I, I'm, as I'm talking to the two, you, I'm reminded of, you know, the documents case from Mar-a-Lago. And then we discovered that Joe Biden had documents in his house. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be you know, a rich irony that we discovered that, in fact, some Democratic or more liberal justice on the Supreme Court also ended up with some vacations? I will tell you this, though. I have a personal anecdote that I don't mind sharing with you. Uh, I did an event with Justice Sotomayor years ago uh, for a program that I run. And I remember reaching out to her and said, look, I'm so grateful that you uh, came to participate in this. I'd like to send you something. And I'd like to send you a gift. She was very clear how much I could spend. And I remembered I hadn't even considered it. And I bought her some, I think a vase or something that was under the limit. So I think there, at least there's one justice who was very, very clear that she was under some obligation for reporting and she could not accept anything above a certain amount. Well, if you want to send me a Tiff- Tiffany vase, uh, I have no limit thing. And, uh, well, uh, M- Megan's is already in the mail. All right, good. Thank you. And before we, before we let you go, uh, the, well, I'm, I'm thinking too, wasn't there a trip I saw in Egypt where Justices Scalia and Ginsburg were together on the riding an yeah. elephant or something? Yeah, they, I wonder, no, they're on camels, I think, right. Yeah, I wonder who paid, yeah. who paid for that. Uh, you know, that'll be interesting. You, you raise a good point. There, there is this requirement if you're a judge or a justice, uh, of recusal that you say, I've got a conflict in this case, I'm stepping aside. And obviously, anything that would involve this particular benefactor, Thomas would have to, you know, ethically recuse himself from. My question of you is, how common are recusals on the U.S. Supreme Court? Do they? It seems to me like it's pretty rare. It is. It is pretty rare. We oftentimes see it. It's happened with Justice Kagan, who was the Solicitor General in the Obama administration. So her position is. If there was ever a case that where I was in the Solicitor General's office that finally makes it up to the Supreme Court, I shouldn't be in on it. Right. So that we've seen it more, but that's a very different concept. She's saying I was in on that case early. I don't think I should be sitting and deciding on it now. Uh, But you're right. This other issue about how cozy we are. I happen to have a friendship with the CEO of that corporation. I really shouldn't. You know, but remember, everything, all this is based on some legal fiction. And one fiction is that jurors are blank slates and have no opinion on anything. And that judges are blank slates, that they have no personal biases. They're simply applying the law. 
But, you know, that's a fiction, right? Everyone has opinions about, you know, when you ask a juror, do you have any opinions about the police? Everyone does, you know, but to say that, oh, no, I never think about it. You know, it's based on this idea that we can separate these subjective biases. Similarly, justice would say, you know, sure, I know the guy. He's in my he's in the same country club. In fact, we played a round of golf, but I don't see why that should affect my judicial temperament on this case. I don't know. I think a lot of people would say, you play golf with him? <laughs> no, we don't think you should be sitting on that case. So a lot of times they don't disclose things like that. We're members of the same club. I've attended a wedding once that we sat at the same table. So, it, you know, we don't know how much of that is actually going on. But right, that that issue uh, could clearly have come up. I think we would have a different conversation if a case with that donor, that benefactor, had actually been before the Supreme Court and Justice Thomas had not disclosed this very, very cozy uh, financial arrangement that he has that, again, is not monetary, but is hospitality-based. As always, we appreciate the time of legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum of CBS News. Your insights are valuable, as always. Thank you so much, sir. We always enjoy talking to both of you. Thank you. So, Megan, uh, to me, I when I initially heard this story reported yesterday, I was, you know, alarmed. I think it's less of a thing having kind of gotten into the weeds and listened to Thane a little bit. How does that how does it hit you? You know, it hit me a little differently. I was immediately thinking, yeah, to the average American, right. a really fancy vacation, that's a bonus. To pretend that that is not some kind of monetary improvement to your life is a joke to most people, right? Mm -hmm. Most people are thrilled if they can pull a few days away to take their family somewhere, let alone have your very, very rich friend offer to take you what sounds like an incredibly luxurious vacation, right? It's yacht. not like he's saying, oh, you want to drive up to Michigan and stay at our house for a long weekend, right? This is not that. Um, so I think it is much worse. I also think most people are probably not horribly surprised by it. Um, yep. But I, I do think it's... Um, something we should really start to consider a lot more what he was saying, the lack of accountability that these justices have. Right. There's We've only seen nine it over them. the years. Yeah. That and, and I kind of suspect I don't have I don't know. But, and, you know, these justices, they make a lot of money, but they're not multi multimillionaires. I don't know what they get. A couple grand, a couple hundred grand, 300 grand a year. Well, it's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, when you see. Scalia and Ginsburg in Egypt, you know, that's not an inexpensive trip. You, it makes you wonder well, whether some of that's being financed. Outside of even the trips, what, what they do certainly have, if it's not extreme wealth, they are basically untouchable human beings. Yeah. They, they do not lose their job. Gig. They are clearly pretty secretive. They don't really have to disclose a whole lot of what's going on with them. They don't have the personal scrutiny that other um, people who are high up in the federal government have. So it's kind of alarming to think that they are probably really living these very um, – elaborate, high-class lives where they're having a lot of personal interactions that are certainly impacting how they behave and the decisions they make. It's one thing to have a friend, if you're the, uh, Thomas, in, in business maybe that's not an overly political business, but the person sending you on trips is the same guy writing your wife six-figure checks who's so involved in Republican politics where these cases we know are purposely brought to, to challenge political positions and put to the Supreme Court. It's fishy. 
And fishy is where we'll leave it. That's Megan Shackelford. She's in for Michael Kelly. I'm John Hancock. It is Good Friday, and it is the Easter holiday season. It's uh, particularly meaningful for me, and I'm sure there's a lot of traditions out there for Easter. We're going to talk about that when we come back right here on KMOX. Trusted information, live and local. From the award-winning KMOX Newsroom. John Hancock alongside Megan Shackelford in for Michael Kelly. And Easter is upon us, Sunday being Easter Sunday morning. You've got a youngin at home. What does it look like at your house? Uh, Barrett is three and a half and has been preparing for her Easter egg hunting since last Easter. I mean, she plays with the basket. The eggs are all over the house. She is thrilled. I have a lot of preparation to make a good egg hunt today. Kids are the best, and uh, you'll you'll show up at mass at some point. Oh nope, we don't do mass. Uh, oh. We are we're a pretty secular uh, Easter Bunny only kind of oh, Easter go. weekend. So we're focused on the egg hunt. Through I think and through. a lot of people are that way. For me, um, you know, faith is kind of the most important thing in my life, yes. and uh, an Easter because of what it represents is, is just profound. And I like the fact that Easter is much less commercialized than, say, Christmas, for yes. example. Uh, this is also we're celebrating Passover, which is happening at the same time as Easter. Our friends in the Jewish faith, are, it's a very significant and profound time as they remember uh, the escape from the Egyptians. And the, the they were slaves, and they were set free, and that amazing story that is told in the book of Exodus is being celebrated by our Jewish friends and by Christians during this time. Uh, Good Friday represents the day that Jesus Christ was crucified. And for believers in Christianity, he uh, once and for all paid the price of our sin on that cross. And as told in the Bible, he rose again on the third day and uh, and therefore uh, gives his people eternal life. And that's, uh, in a nutshell, I don't like to be preachy, but it's a very significant day for me and my family, and uh, I look forward, so forward, to Easter every year. It's a lovely time of year. We we just enjoy, you know, not being religious, turning towards spring, feeling like things have, you know, brightened up, looking forward to summer they have and brightened family up. time. And I wish the Cardinals starting pitching would brighten <laughs> up because that's the biggest concern I've got right now. That's Megan Shackelford. Thanks so much for sitting in. James O'Sullivan doing a masterful job there on the board. And the show is coming up next. Amy and Chris will be with you after the news on KMOX.